Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in French Studies. I'm your host, Roxanne Panchassi, and my guest today is Sanya Perovic, author of The Calendar in Revolutionary France, Perceptions of Time in Literature, Culture, Politics, published in 2012 by Cambridge University Press. Hi there, Sanya. Hello. Hello, Roxanne. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Thank you for, for the interest. It's a great opportunity. Um, I wonder if you could get us started by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself and what got you interested in working on France and, and the study of the French Revolution in particular. Yes, it was a bit of an um, indirect pathway. I'm actually, my background is, as an undergraduate, I studied philosophy and literature. And um, I did a PhD in comparative literature. Um, so I'm not a historian by training. And over the course of my graduate work, uh, I I was interested primarily in French theory and, and, and German philosophy and so forth. And as I got acquainted with the Enlightenment period and um, the Romantic period, I had noticed there was a lot of references to time. I mean, Wordsworth in his poetry talks about spots of time. And we have um, Rousseau, of course, is very much interested in different um, temporal experiences. And, um, and then as I started working more closely with the 18th century, I realized that the one period that's sort of missing out of the 18th century for literary scholars anyway, is usually the French revolution. Hmm. And uh, as I was elaborating, I think I, I wanted to do a, a PhD dissertation on some aspect of, of philosophy of time or philosophy of history. And then um, I came across the French revolutionary calendar and it was such a odd artifact um, sitting there that I became interested in the calendar as an object. Uh, and then through that, actually, I had to learn a lot about the French Revolution. Mm-hmm. So it was actually interest in time and theories of time that brought me to revolutionary time in general, and then the French Revolution in particular. Um, 
So through the back door a bit. So for listeners uh, who don't know anything about the history of the revolutionary calendar and may or may not know very much about the French Revolution, Sonia, can you just give us a very brief, I mean, I realize you've written a whole book about the revolutionary calendar, but a, a very, just to get a start as a sort of basic overview of what was the French Revolutionary calendar? Uh, you know, when was it introduced? Okay, sure. Uh, the French uh, Republican calendar, as it was officially called, um, was introduced actually in 1793, and it was backdated to 1792. Um, it was, uh, people might be familiar with it through, uh, Walter Benjamin mentions uh, this revolutionary calendar, but it's probably today most famous for declaring 1792 to be year one of a new timeline. And it also uh, replaced the seven-day Judeo-Christian week with a 10-day week that was called the Decade, with the new day of rest was supposed to be the Decadi, the 10th day of the week. Um, mm -hmm. It was supposed to be a metric week. And it uh, replaced all the saints uh, with fruits and vegetables and the names of farming utensils. So... I don't know, the name of St. Francis or the day that was formerly dedicated to St. Francis became the Day of the Pumpkin. Hmm. And uh, Chris Christmas, I think, became the Day of the Dog in its original sort of formulation. So it was um, a calendar that combined the desire for rupture, the desire to efface uh, uh, all aspects of the Ancien Regime, including uh, Christian chronology dating from the birth of Christ. Um, it's a very much an Enlightenment product insofar it was trying to institute a metric um, or decimal understanding of time. Mm -hmm. uh, for those of you who might not be aware, the metric system was also introduced uh, during the French Revolution. Um, and finally, there was an attempt to strip back all the sort of symbolic accretion of the Gregorian calendar to get back to a kind of natural astronomical time of planetary revolution. Mm -hmm. So one of the things the calendar really um, captures is the sense that the term revolution, and this was quite strong um, in the 18th century, referred to, often was used in the plural and referred to astronomical revolutions, the kind of cyclical time of nature and not just um, the unidirectional time of history um, that we associate with the term revolution. Hmm. You know, I was excited to read this book because I've always, as somebody who teaches modern France and studies modern France myself, that I do have always had this kind of fascination with the, the revolutionary calendar, but realized that I don't know a lot. I didn't know a lot about it before reading your book. I know a great deal more now. And so I'm curious about that. You know, anyone who studies the revolution hears about the calendar. It's certainly mentioned very often as one of the features of revolutionary culture, but not very often discussed in a sustained uh, way. And I just wonder, you know, why, why do you think that is? Yes, well, I think the primary reason is that it failed. Hmm. <laughs> so I think... Um, Generally, historians and, and people who study the past are more interested naturally by successes or influential, <laughs> um, influential sort of uh, uh, processes. Um, it was in place for almost 13 years, but it sort of limped towards its demise. Um, it, it really, uh, most people associate it with year two, which would have been the first year it was instituted because it was backdated and with the ja Jacobin regime. Uh, I find it an interesting artifact because even though it failed as a functional time frame, uh, nonetheless, it succeeded, I think, um, in imprinting itself on the political imagination. So we have a situation in which the idea of the re revolutionary calendar gets resurrected um, several times uh, throughout history uh, under the commune, 
They briefly um, claimed to be in year 79 of the French Revolution, so they resurrected the timeline. Um, hmm. Auguste Comte also uh, thought that he was going to, he had his own calendar that was in, I think, year 61 of the Great Revolution. Uh, under the Soviets, there was a brief ex- attempt to resurrect the calendar. So I think it's um, it it succeeded as an ideological gesture and as uh, reflected a certain desire for rupture, hmm. but it failed for all practical purposes. Um, so I think uh, it both is important for understanding the French Revolution, for example, 18th Brumaire, these famous dates, all of them borrow from the calendar, mm-hmm. um, but it yeah, it failed as a functional object, I suppose. Well, and having you know pointed out that it's perhaps not always explored in, in a great deal of d- detail uh, in studies of the revolution and overviews of the revolution, um, yours is not the first uh, scholarly yeah. engagement with, yes. with the history of, of the Republican calendar. And I just wonder if you could say something about how your study departs from or adds to previous understandings of, of the calendar within the context of uh, the historiography of the French Revolution or ideas about time? I mean, just sort of briefly before we get into the to the yes. details of the book. Yeah, so I think my sense is um, that the, there, ha- there have been a couple of monographs um, written on the Republican calendar in particular, a recent one by Matthew Shaw. Uh, there was an earlier one um, in 1992, I think, by someone called, a German historian called Michael Meinzer, I, my feeling is that most of these people are interested um, in tracking the calendar's influence um, in everyday life. So the, the, the approach is more a social history approach hmm. um, to see to what extent uh, replacing the seven-day Judeo-Christian week with the 10-day decimal week, to what extent that might have actually changed um, the rhythms of market times, a church going, um, right. the times people can make appointments and so forth. I um, came through it more from a theoretical angle. I, I'm very much influenced by Reinhard Kozelik. And he wrote a, a small, um, I mean, he wrote a very big uh, essay on the term revolution um, and all its different um, meanings it has accrued over time. But he also wrote a very short piece on um, the concept of new time and the calendar. And he, hmm. he made the observation that it's a very paradoxical um, object because on the one hand, it's it's absolutely modern in its attempt to change history. And yet there's something paradoxical about using a calendar, which is um, very much uh, indebted to cyclical time um, in order to uh, 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 kind of imprint one's consciousness of living in a new time. So he thought that the desire to mark the sense of this is new, we've made a revolution, everything's going to be new, that sort of historical consciousness um, is incompatible with calendars that generally tend to be about uh, coordinating people and society and several societies sometimes in a kind of, um, in their everyday habits uh, and also religious belief and so forth. So I think there's a tension at the heart of the calendar um, that I, I was interested in exploring and I think historians have explored this, but I, my feeling is more from the perspective of social history. I mean, that concern with the sort of tensions between this linear conception of, of time and a, and a more cyclical uh, model uh, certainly runs throughout the book. And um, I just wonder, you know, there was a particular, I get the sense from the book that there was this particular uh, tension for revolutionaries between this idea of a return to 
maybe a better past or an idyllic past, a state of nature versus this rupture and the creation of, a, of an entirely new world. So are you arguing that that's a particular contradiction in the case of, of, of the French Revolution? Yes. I mean, I guess it would be a contradiction for anyone who tried to create a new calendar from scratch. Um, most calendars are sort of syncretic objects that are developed over a long period of time. Um, and even when um, uh, societies or, or, or nations or peoples create a new timeline, generally uh, the case it's the case that these things are retroactively um, instituted. So, for example, with the Gregorian calendar, um, the Christian timeline is something that took a very long time to establish itself. Uh, um, even um, in the medieval period, people were still used, dating um, according to Roman regnal years. Hmm. So um, I think it's anybody who wants to create a new timeline from scratch will run into the problem that it's very hard to identify what the rupture moment is when you're in time, right? Because mm -hmm. life goes on in a way. So that's a general problem. And specifically for the revolutionaries, yes, I think they were very much, I mean, I'm not the only one who thinks this. I, most people would say they were very much invested in the idea of a restoration or a regeneration or a return to, as you say, um, uh, a more innocent time, a state of nature. And in fact, uh, I think one of the things they were trying to do with the calendar was to strip it of its Christian connotation mm -hmm. and go back to the astronomical time of, of the Julian calendar. Um, there was this belief that beneath every calendar, there is a natural solar time. Mm -hmm. And that the goal of, of the revolution is to get back to that um, natural time that in which time would be transparent and we no longer need uh, festivals um, and religious festivals um, to, to, to mediate between um, us and the time of the year that we're in. You describe the, the project of the book from, you know, the introduction on uh, Sanya as, um, as at least in part, uh, an attempt to understand how the French Revolution was constructed in its own present. That's a sort of phrase and idea that you use. And I just wonder, you know, what does that mean to understand the revolution in its own present? Yes, I, I, should, I should preface that by saying, of course, it's impossible to know what was going on um, in the minds of the revolutionaries. Uh, however, I thought it was um, an interesting sort of uh, intellectual experiment to see, to take seriously what they were trying to do, I suppose. I think, I think there's always a tendency um, to, to uh, assume that things that have failed were always destined for failure. Mm -hmm. um, and I think one of my sort of challenges of the project was to try to get back in the mindset of, of people who had every reason to think that their attempt to create a new time and, and to symbolize it might succeed. Uh, and again, um, this is an approach that's influenced by Kozelik insofar as this attempt to, to resurrect the future of the past, um, not the future that actually came to pass, but um, the multiple futures that they were faced with, you know, only one of them became the future of the French Revolution. Um, mm -hmm. But there's obviously a whole gamut of possibilities that were open um, in their own present. So I think that's what I, I tried to do with it. Of course, I understand it's, um, it's a bit of an impossible <laughs> task to try to relive the past. Um, but it's um, also an attempt to read the calendar as a, as a kind of lyrical object instead of just treating it objectively from, from the vantage point of, of our vantage point of historical distance um, to try to, 
to understand um, a little bit better the emotional imagination, the projection, the hopes um, that this calendar embodied. Mm-hmm. You begin the book, Sanya, um, well, the project of the book as a whole does this to sort of broaden our, our time frame, um, to, to look at the, by looking at the pre-revolutionary origins of the calendar, you know, not just seeing it as something that emerges at the moment of the revolution, either beginning in 1789 and certainly not just in 1793 with the, the institution of the calendar. So can, can you say a little bit more about these pre-revolutionary origins of the calendar? Uh, where did this idea come from and, and what are some of the antecedents of, of this project? Yes, uh, well, I have to confess that when I started working on this project, I had absolutely no real idea of what calendars were for. I mean, of course, I used one, <laughs> but I had no, um, I was quite ignorant of, of, of the kind of deep cultural history of, of calendars um, in general. Hmm. And so one of the 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 things that struck me as I studied this more and more was was how deeply fixed um, the temporal concepts uh, that they were trying to overturn really were and and in a sense are. So I I think they were very much influenced. There was um, a number of sort of radical Enlightenment thinkers such as the Cour de Gébelin, uh who were very much interested in almanacs, um, different calendars of different uh, civilizations, because they were very much interested to, to, to find out what um, the origins of state-based uh, civilizations were. And they were interested in the Egyptian calendar, in the calendars of the Near East. Um, and they had lots of, the Zodiac was a very, very popular topic um, the, the, that was uh, discussed in quite detail. So they were interested in calendars as a kind of artifact that allowed them to actually do a kind of comparative history of different civilizations uh, because what uh, these civilizations shared in common was a certain um, use of astronomical time. So mm-hmm. there was a number of erudite thinkers that were interested in, in calendars in general. Of course, throughout the 17th and 18th century, there wasn't just one calendar in Europe and uh, there was a kind of ongoing battle between those countries um, that accepted Gregorian reform and the Protestant countries and cantons and areas that were very slow to accept what they considered uh, papal influence. Um, so even in, seven, in the mid-18th um, century, a, a number of countries, the Protestant cantons of Switzerland, or, or um, didn't actually uh, accept the Gregorian calendar, so they were, in effect, living on a slightly different timeline. So I think um, for the 18th century there was actually a deeper familiarity with different calendars and different ideas behind calendars than perhaps there is for us today. Mm-hmm. Um, and then just to add to that, of course, there was the omnipresence of the medieval, um, uh, what I call the medieval Christian calendar, but the kind of liturgical calendar, um, the sort of uh, images and symbols associate with that. I think that was still very much um, in, deeply embedded in everyday cultural life um, for these people. So there was a number of sort of reference points that they could think about when they thought about calendar time. Uh, the specific antecedent for the revolutionary calendar is um, uh, something called the Almanac des Honnêtes Gens that was uh, published by Sylvain Maréchal, who I discuss at length in the book. Um, and this was um, an attempt to, he was one of the first who, uh, abandoned the Christian timeline to be in what he called year one of the reign of reason. And he um, invented a calendar in which instead of saints for each day, um, he picked 
um, exemplary figures from the past and also from the present. Mm -hmm. And he mixed and mingled a lot of people that weren't supposed to be put together. So on his calendar, he had Moses and he had Mohammed and he had Jewish uh, Jesus and Jewish figures and atheist figures and kings and courtesans kind of all commingling. Um, and that was, of course, immediately censored. Um, so that's the actual um, prototype of the revolutionary calendar is this uh, Almanac des Honnêtes-Jean that was uh, published in 1788. It's it's really fascinating. And you've, Sonia, you've also already talked a little bit about this idea of rupture. And, and at the beginning of the book, you, you certainly out, outlined this in the introduction. And then when you're talking about these um, pre-revolutionary origins, you, you come back to this idea of, of rupture. And I just wonder, you know, what was the significance of this idea of rupture for revolutionaries? And how was the calendar, the Republican calendar that, that comes in in 1793, dated back, um, how was that calendar intended to express this idea of rupture? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, it's, it's a, I don't know if I have a, a, a good um, answer for it, but Certainly one of the the things that strikes anyone who studies the French Revolution is how far-reaching some of the changes were and also how how much didn't change, I suppose. Um, But certainly my sense is that for most of the participants, they wouldn't have been able to make such far-reaching claims about the novelty of their society if it was um, if they believed it was truly new and unprecedented. I think what allowed them to go so far in some of their reforms, such as the abolition of feudal privileges um, on August 4th, 1789 and, and so forth, um, was a belief that they weren't actually going into the scary, fearful future, but they were actually recalibrating society on a more natural um, and um, egalitarian basis. So I think Rupture for many of these um, participants uh, was very much overlaid with the sense of regeneration and restoration. Now, in the case of the revolutionary calendar in particular, um, the supporters of this or the calendar, some of them were more committed to a much more radical idea of rupture, which is to destroy the three pillars of the Ancien regime. It was clearly anti-clerical, so against the church. Um, it was meant to erase all memories of the past, mm-hmm. and um, it was uh, meant to, to to kind of establish a new egalitarian relationship between uh, people, because it was thought that the church calendar um, uh, encouraged uh, social hierarchy and difference. Um, so I think there's it, it's it's a big question. I don't have a, a a straightforward answer, but my sense is that if rupture wasn't accompanied by a strong belief in the regenerative uh, possibility of revolution, they might've been less eager to go ahead perhaps. Mm-hmm. And I mean, in some ways I wouldn't expect you to be able to answer that question. Yeah. A couple of minutes, the whole, the whole book kind of engages this, this yeah. idea of, of rupture. Um, your history of the calendar, and you've already mentioned Sylvain uh, Maréchal, the history of the calendar is also in some ways a, sort of political, literary, and intellectual biography of this figure, Maréchal. So what can you tell us about him? What role or roles did he play in the French Revolution um, apart from and alongside the, the, the invention of this, of this Republican calendar? Yes. Well, one of my challenges um, when I started working on this, this topic was how do you access representations of time? I mean, time is a, a kind of a, 
a fluid liquid thing. I mean, mm-hmm. you've got um, instruments that tell time. That's what a calendar is to some extent. But what about um, different conceptions of time? I mean, and so I started looking into the Sylvan Marshall, who, as I mentioned earlier, invented the prototype of the revolutionary calendar. And uh, he is an absolutely fascinating figure. He um, is most well-known, actually, for having uh, participated in the conspiracy of equals with Babeuf, um, which was the first, uh, that was in the 1790s, the first revolution against the revolution, or the first Mm -hmm. revolt against the revolutionary state in the name of a true revolution that was supposed to um, redistribute uh, property, amongst other things. So he's known um, in some circles as the first communist um, or even anarchist because he really, uh, from the beginning actually, he, he was a militant who, who participated in almost every single phase of the French Revolution. Uh, he wrote a, a play in year two, uh, which I guess is his other famous uh, piece, The Last Judgment of All Kings. And in this play, he corrals all the kings, the remaining kings of Europe, monarchs of Europe and the Pope, and exiles them to a volcanic island uh, where they're <laughs> where they are guarded by a by a kind of squadron of sans culottes um, until um, the volcano explodes and and they all um, perish. And that was quite a um, controversial piece at the time, as you yeah. imagine, because most of the monarchs that he represented were actually alive and waging war in France. Um, and he. He was an anarchist insofar as from the very beginning, even though he participated, he was the editor of um, one of the most radical newspapers, the Révolution de Paris, uh, uh, that was Prudhomme's journal. And he uh, was from the beginning critical against any kind of state, really. So he thought that um, at the end of the day, the only true revolution had to um, involve uh, leaving the state behind and going to live um, in what... Uh, he small like a, called a small archipelagos of, of family units in which mm. property would be shared in common and, and there would be no um, no social hierarchy. So yeah, a fascinating figure that that um, has had some influence uh, uh, for subsequent revolutionary movements of the nineteenth and twentieth century. I'm just curious, you know, as a writer, a uh, researcher, and a writer, you know, when you're trying to do this project that is a history of these conceptions of time and the calendar as an object and one that symbolizes uh, these changing ideas. Was that a challenge to work through your attention to Mahashal's biography and the biography of the calendar? Was that hard for you writing the book and putting it together? I I think it it certainly was. (laughs) It might come across sometimes, maybe for some readers of the book, uh, trying to keep these two lenses, um, kind of reading not not just telling the story of the calendar but also telling the story of its inventor and um uh what i find interesting about these two narratives is that marshall's career mimics the career of the calendar so well because he hit his greatest limelight in year two when the calendar was instituted um, Marshall subsequently fell out of favor uh, with with the revolutionary regime, and by the time he died in 1803, he was more or less forgotten. Hmm. And I think this <laughs> this mirrors very well what happened to the calendar. Um, it was instituted uh, in year two, uh, um, 
It was supported by the majority of the elite, actually, which is quite surprising that something so radical would would garner so much support. And it, too, um, limped towards a kind of, um, it kind of petered out of existence um, mm-hmm. in about the same time as Sylvan Marshall um, himself did. So what I tried to, essentially, I was telling the story of two two failures, I suppose, or, or two conceptions of the revolution, the one embodied by the calendar, the other one by the writings of Sylvan Marshall that didn't succeed mm-hmm. um, historically to make much of a mark, although one could argue that the impact of these ideas in the political imagination remained uh, very strong. You point out, Sonia, that there was a, a lag time between the end, and I'm doing rabbit quotes right now, um, the end of the old regime and the introduction of the revolutionary calendar. Um, why was this the case and what was the significance of this, this lag time? Yes, uh, maybe I make, uh, I make uh, perhaps a bit of a rhetorical spin on this, but um, what I found interesting um, in learning more about this is that the king was deposed, as, as many people know, on August 10th, 1792, um, the calendar wasn't instituted until September uh, 1793, and even then it took about a couple of months uh, for the various um, debates to occur in, in, in the convention about what kind of calendar people wanted and so forth. Um, so certainly there's the lag time between the time they declared that they needed to uh, uh, update the existing calendar and the time the new calendar uh, was implemented. Uh, there's further lag times insofar as year one, in a way, it's a funny sort of year. It doesn't really belong in any calendar. Uh, 1789 was actually declared to be year one of liberty. Hmm. Uh, then um, August 10th, 1792, when the king was deposed, was almost immediately declared by the popular press as year one of equality. Um, then you get the institution of the calendar um, on September 22nd, 1793. And now that's the official year one of the French Republic. Right. So you have an, uh, multiple candidates for the status of year one. And uh, I thought another very interesting um, uh, thing that I noticed was that even though the king was deposed on August 10th, 1792, when the calendar was instituted, um, uh, they chose to commemorate uh, the opening of the convention as the true beginning of year one, and they sort of ignored uh, the political events that led to the to, to the downfall of the monarchy, mm-hmm. uh, which is another example again of, of of having a preference for natural symbols over those of history, because um, September twenty second was the day of the autumn equinox, and it was supposed to represent uh, the moment the day and night occurred in equal measure, and uh, the calendar in a way, especially with its kind of poetic imagery, the months named after the seasons, the fruits and vegetables and so forth. Uh, you might notice that, that there aren't any references to actual events of the French Revolution in the mm-hmm. calendar. Is this connected to this notion that, that you talk about in the book, Sanya, of um, the idea that the narrative and the chronology of the French Revolution were not identical? Yeah, I... Obviously, there's there's many different narratives of the French Revolution, uh, obviously, and they were already there from the beginning, uh, depending who you were and how you felt about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly, there's a way in which 
Um, there's a narrative we, narratives that we tell ourselves now about the French Revolution, and they rely on uh, our conventional chronology. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we have dates 1789 and 1790 and 91 and 1793 and, and so forth. Um, what I find interesting is that many of the current narratives of the French Revolution still rely on Republican dates um, to demarcate important turning points. Uh, Nine Thermidor, right? When Ro- Nine and Ten Thermidor, when Robespierre was deposed, that's still referred to as Nine and Ten Thermidor. Mm-hmm. Um, I was fairly ignorant when I started studying the French Revolution, so it took me a while to know what nine, what that it was July and so forth, seventeen ninety four, because it's such a shorthand uh, that people refer to Nine Thermidor. Um, sure. And 18th Brumaire, um, when Napoleon uh, did his coup, is another um, date that really I had to look up to see exactly when it happened and what what the year was and and so forth. So there's a way in which current historical narratives rely on Republican dates. That's Mm -hmm. one element. And of course, within the revolutionary period itself, um, they were conflicting. Of course, there were conflicting chronologies um, uh, ongoing at the time. That's why the calendar, I think, is so fascinating, because... It was used by the participants to impose, depending on who they were, one narrative over another mm-hmm. at various times because it was in place for, for almost 13 years. I couldn't help but think, you know, reading this this uh, part of the book that, um, you know, when I teach the French Revolution, I think I already frustrate my students enough with a, an inattention to chronology. <laughs> I was thinking that, yes, it's true. I teach them, you know, 9 Thermidor, 18 and um, that's about it, I think, in terms of the, the revolutionary <laughs> yeah. calendar. But um, but introducing these more complex, I think I think I'll drive them crazy if I introduce this that's sort true. of competing <laughs> notions of time. But but it is it is quite fascinating to me, and and I guess it's connected to me too f- with this notion that you know I suppose a too simplistic periodization of the French Revolution, but one that well, I certainly rely on to a certain extent in my teaching, um, mm-hmm. it divides the events of the revolution and the story of the revolution into these phases, right? The liberal, a liberal or constitutional phase, a radical uh, Republican phase, and then this sort of reactionary, uh, the nine therm- post-nine Thermidor phase, yes. reactionary phase. And I'm just wondering how the history of the calendar fits with, how your history of the calendar fits with or ch- and, and or challenges this this kind of conventional shorthand organization and periodization of the French Revolution? Yes, well, uh, what I tried to do with the book, and this was kind of the gambit, I suppose, was to ask the reader, and I, I think it also will frustrate the reader as well, uh, to ask the reader to keep in mind um, two chronologies at the same time. Mm-hmm. One is our chronology, of course, um, as a, that we use, um, and to also ask the reader to read along with the Republican dates in mind, as if the Republican calendar um, is, was the calendar that was the official one at that time. So um, I repeatedly in the book refer to Republican dates as much as I can, mm-hmm. even in year three or year four or, or onwards, in order to remind the reader, you know, this might be the period of reaction, but actually... Um, it, the calendar was very much still in place, and uh, in, at certain moments of the so-called reaction, uh, there was a return to the calendar and, and, and an insistence on it. So that's part of the reading of, of the book, I hope. Well, it's a bit difficult, but yeah, to keep in mind that there's actually the intended timeline, which I also argue, because um, they were trying to create a new timeline, that means a, a whole new time, a new future 
that was supposed to last forever. Right. <laughs> to imagine that ourselves being in year three of the revolution, the way someone would be in year three of the Roman Empire. Um, uh, and at the same time, of course, um, keeping in mind that it was a failed experiment, we need to keep in mind uh, that, that um, at every given moment in time, there was a revision. It was kind of ongoing revisionism uh, during the revolutionary period. So that said, I would say that um, t- the contribution I, I hope t- to make uh, to current um, periodization is to argue that perhaps this division into a liberal revolution um, that often is um, thought to end in 1792-93 um, to give way to the radical revolution, and that maybe neither of these are exactly the right um, terms to use because both of them rely on a periodization that is aided and embedded by the institution of the calendar itself. Mm-hmm. So um, often people will say, well, there's two versions of the French Revolution, the liberal one that, that, that complains that all the good principles got derailed by the bad terror. Mm-hmm. And then there's uh, the more socialist um, interpretation that argues, well, the reason why the revolution went awry is because it never fulfilled its social goals or, or so forth. Uh, I'm trying to show in this book that it's very hard to disentangle these two um, interpretations that, that even during the reaction um, in the, during the directory, a lot of liberals supported the calendar for their own purposes, perhaps, but um, they nonetheless did. Uh, at the same time, uh, those people who focus too much on the revolution, on the revolution's goals um, might not um, be as sensitive to how the actual events and the unfolding of events really changed the revolution's intentions. Um, so I would say I tried to intervene on both sides uh, of the debate to say that it's not so clear cut if we think about how long the calendar was in place and, and the wide range of people who supported it or didn't. Yeah, I think the book is really effective in that sense of, in, in you know, through this, uh, work on on Marichal and on the calendar to kind of open up uh, our notions of how we organize the revolution uh, politically and and the politics of interpretation of the different phases, so called, of of the revolution and 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 that was really fascinating to read about. Um, you you talk uh, Sonia about you know festivals and the festivals of reason and the festive calendar, and I th- I do think that's one of the things that. Um, you know, people who even have a cursory understanding of the French Revolution are, are, are really fascinated by, you know, these festivals of reason and the replacement of, of the old sacred with a whole new set of sacred mm-hmm. rituals, um, some of them quite uh, intricate and, and, and some of them bizarre. You know? and, and I wonder how the, your story of the calendar and of Maréchal's work um, engages with this idea of a, a whole new, and I know you're not doing a social history, but a whole new kind of way of approaching daily life and of, uh, and, and ritual. How does all of that fit into this, to this story? Yeah, I, I find it, it's, this is a very good question. I, I'm myself am fascinated by the audacity of some of these um, experiments and creating mm-hmm. festive culture. I mean, the most, uh, perhaps well-known one is the festival of reason where they, um, replaced, uh, the central icon of Christianity, the Virgin Mary, with with this living goddess, uh, who was supposed to, mm-hmm. in several of the of the um, theatricalizations, was supposed to unveil herself to 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 reveal the triumph of reason over religion. Um, 
uh, I think that's quite fascinating. Of course, many people have worked on the festive culture of the French Revolution mm-hmm. um, and done kind of um, um, kind of magisterial work on it. Uh, I think what the calendar allows us to do is um, to consider, I guess, first of all, the difficulty of instituting a new festive culture. Uh, what ended up happening, the revolution was filled with festivals, but very few of them have remained. Uh, um, or some of them have, uh, the celebration of, of the Bastille Day or uh, the 14th of July 14th is one of them. Um, but the whole challenge of the calendar, and this is where I found it really fascinating, they, because it was supposed to institute a natural relationship to time, they weren't supposed to rely on what they considered to be the gimmicks of religion Hmm. Which are the, the the icons, the statues, the pageantry, the 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 colors, the the uh, the and that was on the one hand, and so yeah, they, they were supposed to be transparent. <laughs> they weren't supposed to have any mediating object, and that's very um, straight out of the pages of Rousseau, I believe. Um, this uh, this attempt um, to to create a festive culture in which there's no sort of object of representation that at any moment um, the the spectator can become the actor for the other spectators. And it's all kind of like one communal village festival. Uh, So that was certainly one um, aspect of it. But the other problem they ran into is that without um, the gimmicks and the sort of pageantry, uh, it's very hard to get people excited. Right. So, so you get this tension between reason that's supposed to be transparent and, and, and neutral and, and almost um, self-signifying on the one hand, uh, and the desire to replace certain icons and images with other icons and images. Of course, the difference with the revolutionaries is, is that they were um, that they intended uh, the imagination not to go beyond what could be sensed by the senses. Um, and mm. I think that's the materialism and the empirical basis uh, was 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 quite strong. Um, yes. So the calendar. Um, I think reveals a slightly different relationship insofar as it participated very actively in the kind of high point of the festive culture when all the most um, innovative part, uh, what the revolutionaries quickly found out is that they couldn't quite control the people's imagination and the way they <laughs> And you get a lot of uh, a reaction against the carnivalesque, the more, so the calendar was used as a kind of disciplining object, have a festival the way we want you to have a festival, which is rational and ordered um, but at the same time, it borrowed from this um, strong, radical, I call it radically atheistic, materialistic imagination uh, that was prevalent. One of the things that you talk about in the book, Sonia, and that is certainly a, a, a dominant theme in, in, in French history um, and French cultural studies uh, is this notion of sort of temporal issues, but also the, the notion of memory. And I'm just wondering what the relationship is here between the way that you're talking about the calendar and revolutionary time and Republican time and ideas about memory during the French Revolution. Well, that's another fantastic, <laughs> huge question. <laughs> I have a yeah, habit of asking huge questions. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Question from a third Republic historian. <laughs> <or>. That's right. <laughs> um, Yes, I can't really. <laughs> I, I did use a little bit. I was influenced a bit by my um, somewhat cursory reading, but of of Halbach, uh, Maurice Halbach's um, uh, theory of collective memory. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
certainly what you see with the calendar is an attempt to wipe out all pre-existing memory and also pre-existing group memories. Uh, if we think of a society of orders, um, each social order in a way has its own um, way of enacting its, its group identity and its group memory. Uh, and uh, what the French nation was before the revolution was a kind of um, combination of, of several group memories you know, the church with the liturgical calendar, the nobility um, that participated in the church, but also had its own um, way of commemorating the past. Um, and then, of course, um, kind of the, the general public holidays and festivities of, of the people. Um, so they tried to erase all these um, group memories and replace them with one sort of collective memory that was supposed to represent um, the memory of this new people, this new newly regenerated people. So essentially what you get is um, you create, they try to create a new memory from scratch. They didn't want any pre-existing memories um, to persist. Uh, that didn't um, succeed, of course. But what the calendar contains as a kind of trace material is of the conflict between different conceptions of group memory, I think. Um, as each faction sort of took over power, they, they used the calendar um, to project, in a sense, their own understanding of how memory should function and how public festivity should function. Um, so, in a way, um, the calendar tells the story of it almost became saturated or oversaturated with conflicting memories hmm. um, of the revolution and conflicting um, revisions of the revolution. So, I think... Out of its ideal, which is one collective memory, you get um, several narratives. Uh, and I guess you could say you get um, a moment in which a historical sense might uh, trump uh, this project of searching for a collective memory. So at the end of the day, the calendar becomes less about memory and more about history, hmm. about dates and events and, and, and struggles over the meaning of, of the terms. The other thing I wanted to ask you about, and I don't know if this is because I'm a third republic historian or not, but but because you you also said something about coming into this project through or from uh, an interest in theory, French theory, that that uh, a couple of points in the book, this issue of re republican revolutionary space comes up, and of course when people talk about time and temporality, the maybe the too obvious question is, okay, what has this got to do with space? You know, how are these things connected and um, you know, from architectural projects during the revolution to just a sense of the space of the nation. Is there a connection between the history of the calendar and these ideas about temporality that you're exploring in the book and notions of, of space in this period? Uh, certainly. Um, I think one of the images that one could associate with the calendar is that of a circle of cyclical time. And one of the predominant images that was replicated architecturally in some of the plans, future plans that never material, materialized um, for a new architecture, is this idea of a circle. Mm. Um, and I think uh, one of the, the, the revolutionaries actually says, you know, moral equality will be like a geometric circle. Mm. Um, when we can all see each other and all occupy the same distance from the center... Um, then equality will be um, achieved. So I think there's a way in which uh, some of the utopian uh, plans uh, for new architecture, also the festivals, the way they were choreographed, um, all involved inhabiting 
space differently. Uh, and I think the idea of the circle as a kind of moral geometry hmm. and the idea of the calendar as embodying a kind of cyclical time of moral regeneration are, are very closely tied. Um, in terms of theory, I would say certainly someone like Durkheim uh, was, was very much interested, of course, in the revolutionary festivals. Uh, so there's a kind of um, uh, reflection on the French Revolution that later gets taken up by uh, French theorists of the 19th um, century in particular and then the early 20th century. Mm-hmm. So the last part of the book, Sanya, is devoted to the story of, of the calendars. You know, you, some of the terms you use are, I, I, I like these phrases, you know, the wearing out of the calendar, the piecemeal yeah. declines, you know, story of failure um, that you're recuperating uh, as significant, but... Um, you know how and why did the did the Republican calendar fail? What is your assessment of of those big questions? Yes, in a sense, um, partly because because I'm partly because I don't think there is an answer, but partly because I'm not a historian, I don't really have a a causal explanation of how and why the calendar failed. I mean, people have given many plausible reasons. Hmm. Of course, one of them is that habits are hard to overturn. Uh, the other one is that perhaps it wasn't in place long enough. Uh, the metric system actually took quite a while to be established. And it's interesting to compare the calendar, which also attempted mm-hmm. to sort of implement a decimal or metric time with um, the metric reform of space. Uh, um, in the Cahiers de Doléances, uh, there was a lot of demand uh, for a new system that would standardize weights and measures. So that was actually a pre-revolutionary demand for, for new measures. In the case of the calendar, there was actually no popular demand for a new calendar. That, that makes it quite a different, much more ideologically driven project. Um, however, if we think it took, I think, over 50 years for the metric system to be established. I mean, Napoleon ended up abolishing the metric system, partly because he thought once the calendar was abolished, why not also abolish the metric system? I mean, he, th- he thought of the two as going hand in hand. Mm-hmm. Um, so an argument could be made that if it had been around long enough and there was enough top-down enforcement that maybe it would have succeeded. But of course, the other big problem of the, of, of the Republican calendar is that other European countries didn't have one, with the exception of the the Batavian Republic actually instituted its own revolutionary calendar briefly. So there was a kind of attempt to export the French revolutionary calendar to other countries um, uh, uh, briefly. And I think at one point, some commercial travelers had trouble because I think the Batavian Republic was in year three when the French Republic was already in year five or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, but certainly Europe most European countries didn't adopt a revolutionary calendar and that made trade and commerce and communication quite difficult. I mean, that's one of the reasons that was given by Laplace when, when the calendar was abolished. Well, Europe lives in European time. Uh, we can't be insisting that we live in a different time. So in a sense, the return, uh, the abolish, abolishing the calendar was a way to return the French revolution to a kind of European history. Mm. Um, whereas before that, there was an, uh, Maybe this is the birth of French exceptionalism <laughs> to some extent, um, certainly the revolution is, but the sense that why not the French Republic was supposed to be a new republic and therefore a model for the world. Mm-hmm. One of the things I find interesting as a kind of inverse of that question is to say perhaps there wasn't a realization of what the time of tradition and habit was until something so audacious as the calendar 
actually failed. That perhaps um, we are, one should maybe reverse the question and say what the failure of the calendar showed was the deep fixity of tradition and habit. Mm. And that was perhaps in a way a discovery. It's um, interesting you say that uh, I think somewhere in the beginning of the book and then again at the end you talk about the fact that the calendar was um, adopted with very little opposition and then sort of abandoned with very little opposition. And I just wonder, you know, given how ideologically driven, as, as you've pointed out, this project was, it's, it's sort of curious to me that um, there wasn't more resistance at the outset and then resistance at the moment of its abandonment. That, that, what do you think accounts for that? Yeah, I think certainly on the part of the population, there, pro- there probably was resistance, depending on who you were and what your politics mm. were. Um, there would have been resistance from the beginning. Uh, I think the elite, uh, they were educated from the same school, I guess, to some extent, and um, had imbibed the same sources and maybe were as enamored by the same ideals uh, and that they thought perhaps... Uh, it, I mean, there was some some objection that that time, you know, is, is too difficult to change, but perhaps they were um, what they shared was a, a, a common hope and also a common um, belief in scientific progress, because mm-hmm. the calendar was supposed to represent um, an improvement on the Gregorian calendar, and and one of its 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 claims to fame, although that ended up not being the case, was that it was going to be a perpetual calendar. So instead of looking on the calendar today and wondering, are we October 1st and we're a Tuesday and so forth, we would know what day of the week we were. Um, wow, that would be great. Yeah, but if we had a perpetual calendar. So I think there was, there was um, a, belief in, a belief in science and also a belief that I find quite fascinating, a belief that if only reason could prevail, um, consensus would prevail as well. So there was a dream of harmony, I think, um, um, that the calendar sort of exemplifies that was shared by a number of people. And of course, by the time the revolution was over, that dream ha- had been shattered. Mm-hmm. You, you, know, you just said this thing about the revolution uh, being over, and but I was really struck by something in, in your concluding uh, comments in the book where you say that the, and I'm quoting here, the Republican calendar served as a preface to a revolution that never really did end. And I find that you know, sentence very provocative and, and, and fascinating. And I just wonder if you could, you know, what do you mean by, by that? And, and how did the calendar return? And what does it mean to say that the, that the French Revolution um, never really ended? Well, I, I think that's a paraphrase, um, perhaps from Hegel. So <laughs> <laughs> but maybe, maybe the revolution has finally ended, but certainly there's this debate. Um, Francois Furet was a, uh, um, uh, famously said that the revolution mm-hmm. was over um, in in 1989. Uh, I think, um, for my purposes, I, I'm more interested in, in in the 19th and 20th centuries. There's a way in which this dream of a new time and a year one and a new beginning keeps on popping up over and over again. And in that sense, it's it's a preface because, in a way, year one is one of those dates where they're almost it's almost an absurdity to talk about year 15 and year 20 and year 89. Um, and yet the hope of every year one is that there will be a year 18 and a year 89 and a year 1023 mm-hmm. and so forth. So I think in that sense, um, this dream of beginning anew is something that uh, has stayed 
with many people, not just in Western Europe, but also in all the different places where the revolution was eventually exported. Um, each uh, big revolution uh, has a similar, arguably a similar relationship to time. Um, I'm not uh, so familiar with the Maoist revolution, but I think one can find a similar sort of um, uh, thought process. Of course, many of them are imitating the French Revolution, but I think there's a way in which the calendar forces us to think of the revolution perhaps more lyrically hmm. than some historians might be inclined. So the question is not just how did this particular French Revolution that, that began in 1789, how did that end and when did that end? Uh, but to what extent uh, is that opening still a possibility or, or still an opening? Um, and that requires us to think um, of that particular year one, not as something that can be aligned on any given chronology. You can have any number of year ones and they can be any place in time. Uh, so in a sense, it's a very overdetermined moment, but um, it's not a moment that allows itself to be foreclosed uh, in a way that, that one might want to foreclose something like the French Revolution began in 1789, ended whenever, 1799 or 1848 or, or whenever you think it might have ended. You say at the, the beginning of the book, Sonia, and, and certainly come back to this notion throughout, that this idea of the, the story of the revolutionary calendar containing the history of our own modern time schema, um, you know, pointing to some of the much broader implications of of this book, not just for our understandings of the French Revolution, but for how uh, how we think about time from you know the 18th century right up to the present, and uh, I just I wanted to ask you about that: how you see the calendar fitting into this uh, alteration of of the notion of modern time. Yeah, that's a really really good question, and um, uh, it has a quite complex, many faceted uh, answer because. One of the difficulties I had working on this project is, of course, there's a kind of ubiquity of our own calendar, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, which is the modern time schema that we're most familiar with. Um, the Gregorian calendar has now become the de facto global calendar. So whether you're in, in India or in, in, in Russia, people might have their own calendars, but generally the calendar of commerce and communication is this Gregorian calendar that, that the revolutionaries tried to overturn. So in a way, the revolutionary calendar is very unmodern. It is both compulsively modern in the sense that it wanted to establish itself and its idea of new time as, um, it, as a new time. And so I'm not being very clear. It was compulsively modern in the sense it attempted to break with tradition. Mm -hmm. And that was its kind of fundamental um, aim. Uh, so that, in that sense, I think it contributed very much to our sense of of modern time as consisting of rupture and several ruptures and constant novelty and newness. So that's definitely its modern aspect. But its unmodern aspect, I think, lies in the fact that it was um, symbolically overdetermined. What allows our current Gregorian calendar to travel so well is that essentially its religious references have sort of faded with time. Mm -hmm. um, and that allows other people with their own religious traditions to use it. Uh, and also my feeling is that the way we use a calendar today is very much as a kind of empty grid. Mm. Um, 
you know, when we open our agendas, uh, when we made this arrangement to have our interview today, uh, we're usually faced with a bunch of blank squares on a page. <laughs> right, the iCal moment. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so in a way, um, to live in, a, in today's world in a modern time schema is to have an idea of time as an empty space. Or as a Benedict Anderson uh, famously said, the idea of, of modern time as the time of sim- simultaneity. Um, what a calendar allows us is all of us to coordinate our actions together. I mean, that's what all calendars do, but certainly that becomes more important as, as the world becomes global. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is an aspect of the revolutionary calendar that definitely didn't make it to this world. And I think it's, it's, it's symbolic overdetermination. It's intentionality uh, both makes it extremely modern, <laughs> but also unmodern. And also it's belief in the final ultimate predominance of cyclical time, I think makes it something that didn't survive the present. Um, so I think it's both contributed to our idea that history consists of rupture and there's all sorts of ruptures and historians talk about epistemic ruptures and these ruptures and those ruptures. Um, there's of course revolutionary history, um, but at the same time, there's something in the calendar that resists um, this modern sense of time. Uh, and I find it straddles both uh, an unmodern world. I know that's not a real term, but an unmodern world and a modern time schema. Well, Sonia, I've taken up a lot of your time, but I'd like to ask you one last question, which is what are you working on now? Oh, good question. <laughs> <laughs> I am in the very beginnings of a new project, uh, that tentatively is titled um, World History as World Court, The Theatrical Origins of Human Rights. Mm. And I'm, again, interested in uh, this idea of, of, of the way history gets set up, in a sense, as a moral tribunal, in which you can be on the good side or the bad side. Um, so the new project continues on my interest in a kind of politics of time, um, but I, I would like to take it back to the 18th century, look at theater in particular, um, uh, and to see, um, uh, I know human rights is a very loaded term, but to see to what extent uh, there was an attempt to, to use theater as a way to stage man and to um, stage a new idea of man as a kind of universal being. Hmm. Uh, and so will this project be focused on France as well, or...? Uh, France and hopefully Germany as well. I think there's a lot of interchange, especially um, in the world of theater criticism um, between Germany and France. But mm-hmm. it's still in its early stages, so we'll see what happens. Well, it sounds really fascinating, and uh, um, and I look forward to to seeing it appear in in, in various forms in the in the future. Um, I just want to thank you so much, Sonia, for joining me today and illuminating this period of, of French history and this this object of the revolution that is that is really so interesting. Thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure for me. You've been listening to New Books in French Studies. Thanks so much for tuning in, and I hope you'll join us again next time.